Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the fifth annual Ralph Darndorf Memorial Lecture. I'm delighted to welcome several members of the Darndorf family again to this event. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge the representatives of the Zeit Foundation, which generously supports this lecture and colloquium the Frit Ord Foundation and the Aurea Foundation, which support the work of the Darndorf program. Ralph Darndorf was a German sociologist who went on to become a public intellectual deeply engaged in both European and global debates. So it's particularly fitting that our speaker today is a German sociologist who went on to become a public intellectual deeply engaged in European and global debates. Professor Ulrich Beck is probably the Germany's leading sociologist today. He holds positions at the University of Munich and at the LSE and in Paris. He will forgive me, I'm sure, if I don't list all his publications, positions, titles, and honors, but he became best known originally for coining and defining the term risk society. His work has covered topics such as reflexive modernization. As you will hear, cosmopolitanism and cosmopolitization and cosmopolitan risk communities. But he particularly... Um, it became the person to do this year's Darndorf Lecture because of his engagement in the European debate, notably with a book called, um, challengingly, German Europe, uh, published in Germany in 2012 and in, England in, in English in 2013. Um, a notion, by the way, which he treats with some scepticism, I hasten to add. Um, he has been deeply engaged with the Spinelli Group in mobilizing support for the European Union, and so it's particularly fitting that he should be our lecturer just a few weeks before some highly contested elections to the European Parliament. Our first respondent is our own Professor Calypso Nicolaides, Professor of International Relations, former director of the European Studies Centre here, director of the Centre for International Studies, uh, one of this country's leading experts on the European Union and federalism, and in particular, someone who has coined and advanced the notion of European democracy. Demoi, the plural of demos, something that she will explain more about, I'm sure, in the discussion. She was also a member of the reflection group chaired by Felipe González, commissioned by the European Council to look at Europe 2030. Um, in English, we tend to call such groups groups of wise men, um, but that would not be entirely appropriate for Calypso. Um, but the French wonderfully say a groupe des sages, so she is our sage for today. Uh, and and uh, Lord Hannay, our second respondent, is one of Britain's most distinguished uh, retired diplomats. 
he was actually a first secretary on the negotiating team which negotiated Britain's entry to what were then the European communities. He was Britain's permanent representative to the European communities in the late 1980s and to the UN in the early 1990s. He has been extremely active in British European debates ever since. He's a board member of the Centre for European Reform. And very importantly, he's a member of the House of Lords uh, EU Select Committee. And while the House of Lords might possibly not be absolutely the most democratic of second chambers in the European Union, it is actually one that does some of the most effective scrutiny of EU legislation. Uh, and it's a committee, by the way, on which Ralph Darndorf also sat for many years. Um, so he is a very close and supremely well-qualified um, uh, respondent to Professor Beck. Uh, Professor Beck will speak for about 30 to 40 minutes. Our respondents will speak for about five to eight minutes, and then there'll be plenty of time for discussion. So please join me in welcoming Professor Ulrich Beck, to deliver this year's Darndorf Lecture on the cosmopolitan outlook, how the European project can be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for this um, warm welcome. It's quite an honor, an opportunity, a challenge, maybe even a risk to talk to such a sophisticated audience in such a sophisticated building on the issue of um, Europe in honor of Ralf Dahndorf. In my Ralf Dahndorf lecture, I put center stage the Dahndorf question, how can Europe ensure peace and freedom for its citizens in the face of old and new threats in the 21st century and in this way also win the support of the Eurosceptical European citizens for a new European dream, to borrow Churchill's formula? Already years ago, Darndorf asked the question I'm going to discuss today here, who actually speaks the language of Europe? Who is the European we? Brussels, Strasbourg, Berlin, or finally the citizens of Europe after all? Europe is one thing for sure. It's a moving target. Another change in priority is taking place as we speak at the present historical moment. The defining issue in European politics is no longer the Euro bailout policy, but instead the confrontation with the nuclear armed Russia. In the upcoming European elections in May, the EU could once again appear to the voters as a force for peace and not as a money guzzling bureaucratic monster, at least so in the Eastern post-Soviet Union 
countries and maybe in Finland and Sweden, for example, as well. So let us start with the simple Dandorf question. Who speaks the language of Europe? My answer is I have five theses, first theses. We have a huge problem in defining what Europe is actually about. And this is an embarrassing problem now so many years of talking about Europe. Europe is essentially a moving target. It is not a fixed condition. Europe is not a territorial unit. Europe is not a state. Europe is not a nation writ large. Europe is not, not, not. Actually, there isn't really Europe. There's only Europeanization. There's only a, press, a process of ongoing transformation. And even the term transformation maybe isn't quite right for it. I'm, in German, I would now use the term Verwandlung, uh, metamorphosis, uh, which might be a better word as I defined it. With Europeanization and uh, metamorphosis, I mean a politics of side effect. European politics and society did not emerge on an open stage in a heroic political act, but evolves as a regime of side effects. The trademark of this side effects history of the EU is, is fundamental ambivalence. On the one hand, as reflects the list der Vernunft, as Hegel would have called it, a cunning of reason that enables Europe to step out of the long shadow cast by its bloody history. On the other hand, a Europe of side effects is something that nobody really intended and authorized, but nevertheless turns people's life, lives upside down and thus provokes national and ethnic resistance. The development of the EU occurred through the transnational cooperation of elites with their own criteria of rationality, largely independent of national public's interest and political convictions. B, who is the actor of Europeanization as transformation? The invention of Europe was a product not of the public deliberation and democratic procedures, but of juridical prescriptions and praxis. It was a European court of justice, which in accordance with the self-definition, elevated the European founding treaties to the status of constitutional charter, charter in two leading decisions in 1963 and 64. Consequently, a European law emerged that claims constitutional priority, which has, was duly accepted and acknowledged as such by the key actors in European politics. So if you are asked what actually is the core of Europe, it's a European law as an, as an actor. And to be sure, uh, it is not uh, the image of the bureaucracy, which we're always talking, this monster, which everybody has in mind, because actually there's a very specific way of uh, implementing those laws. It's not implemented by Europe, it's implemented by the nation states themselves. This is a specific structure. So we have to realize this structure and not, not only have the often wrong image, which is uh, so much in the public uh, uh, perception. 
C. Where then did the power of transformation come from? The power of European metaphors was and is an answer to the anthropological shock and horror of the Second World War, thereby a kind of normative horizon emerged. Never again Holocaust. A short look at the history of world with society demonstrates the power of these dynamics. When Hiroshima happened, no one understood nuclear weapons. But afterwards, a worldwide shock of the violation of ethical foundations to, of humanity has created a normative horizon and expectation, never again Hiroshima, which till up today is the background for the politics of disarmament in all its conflicts and uh, problematic. In the meantime, there have many occasions like this came up. Never again Chernobyl. Never again 9-11. Never again Fukushima. Never again global financial crisis. Always this kind of anthropological shock which totally uh, contradicts our expectations, not only politically, but theoretically as well, and creates a normative horizon for changes and thereby pushing for a regime change in national, international politics and law. The latest example of this is the digital freedom risk, which has only become public visible by the courage of one man, Edward Snowden, the whistleblower. To me, this is an existential self-inflected threat to the Western idea of liberty, and I'm very much missing Ralf Dahndorf's voice in this affair. D, we are now in a new stage of European metaphors, which the Financial Times two weeks ago celebrated on the front page with the headline, Super Deuce Day for EU Bank Regulation. A bank regulation as an answer to never again financial catastrophe. I was, talk, I was using the term 1999 in my book on worldless society, I was using the term financial Chernobyl. And when I, when I used it, I had a bad conscience because I thought this is actually overestimating, overstretching the point. But what I had in mind is pretty much what, what happened 2008 and, and today. The anticipation of another financial catastrophe is creating an enormous appetite for financial legislation. Europe's banking union is a project of a regime change, as the Financial Times has put it, pooling power and money unmatched since the creation of the single currency. Taxpayers no longer first in line to bail out banks. Governments are no longer sole masters of their banks, etc., etc. And by the way, Britain has already lost its veto power in Europe. Second thesis the anticipation of financial catastrophe changed the European landscape of power fundamentally. We can observe three shifts in power. First, there is a division between Eurozone, 
nations and EU nations. Now all the politics, because of the crisis, uh, is concentrated in the Eurozone nations. And the prime ministers who are not part of the Eurozone have to, leave. this is a very embarrassing situation, have to leave the room when the real meat comes on the table. And this is true for uh, Cameroon as well. So Britain is actually maybe the country which is the greatest victim of the division between the Eurozone countries and countries that merely are members of the EU. Thinking in terms of power, the historical moment of decision, in my mind, for Britain, is not an in-out referendum in the relation to the European Union, but a different kind of decision, either regaining power by becoming a member of the Eurozone or out. The question then is, what does out mean? And I think this is actually the Achilles heel of the Eurosceptic position. I wonder if they have any plan, A or B, for little Europe. The total withdrawal from the EU entails departure from the world's largest single market with fatal consequence. Nobody really can want this. The model many Tories seem to have in mind, Britain retaining access to internal market but being exempted from most of the EU laws, including free movement, is a political fantasy. To put it in ironical terms, it's very difficult for a German professor to be ironical. <laughs> therefore, I'm, therefore, I'm mentioning it ahead. <laughs> to combat climate change and flooding of the British island by leaving the EU may not be the right answer. And leaving the EU doesn't really fix the national health system either. Along this line, we have to realize saving the EU and saving Britain's future are uh, intimately interconnected. Second, inside of the EU countries, there is a second division between creditor and debtor nations. This is a very important relationship. And actually, social sciences didn't think much about this relationship, which is getting such an important dynamic for social inequalities, which you cannot think in class categories, because it involves all kinds of countries. And then even uh, uprise and downgrading of whole countries and classes. So it's a completely new dynamic. It's not a new dynamic, but it's not something which we actually have on on, on, this, on, on, on our uh, screen so far. A dramatic growth had opened up at the epicenter of the crisis, uh, crisis-written states of the Eurozone, in particular between those countries that are on the drip provided by the rescue funds and those countries that are financing the bailout. Third, the consequence of this is the economically most powerful country, Germany, becomes a politically most powerful country. This way, a kind of accidental empire 
of a German Europe uh, has, has emerged. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel is practicing a new style of politics, power politics in Europe. I call it Merkelism. It's a combination of Machiavelli and Merkel. <laughs> My book is about this. By the way, the, the Germans think Machiavelli is actually an insult to Merkel. I gave a lecture in Florence uh, uh, last year. Here uh, I, I learned that they see Machiavelli as an insult to Machiavelli. <laughs> <laughs> Third thesis, Europeanization as politics of side effects has created a Europe without Europeans. And the Euro crisis has victimized the European citizens, so no anti-European revolution is rocking Europe. I, our findings in, in my research center on reflexive modernization five years ago already gave us this picture. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it, but they already found out that this is the case. The anti-European movements instrumentalize the contradiction of Europeanization as politics of side effects and the new imperialistic power structure of the EU. The resentment is not only directed against Muslims and other foreign elements, but against the so-called liberal elites. They are the ones who, in the opinion of many are destroying national identities. These elites are also the ones who allowed the cities to be overflowed with foreigners, whether legal or illegal. They are the ones who created the European Union, this demon demonic abstraction, as well as the welfare state in which the outsiders are now making themselves at home. But in order to understand the, movie, the, the movements of anti-European sentiments, much differentiation is needed. Research, which has been conducted as well in my center, uncovers the following paradox. <coughs> and that, I find this very interesting. EU skepticism grows with the Europeanization of everyday life. People are actually enjoying Europe, being mobile in Europe taking the advantages of Europe, but at the same time vote against Brussels and Europe. This is, I think, a quite an interesting result which makes us think uh, about. Fourth thesis, but how can Europe overcome this crisis of coexistence? The empowerment of democratic institutions is necessary, but it's not a sufficient condition. I think the question which has not been really asked so far, neither from, from uh, in, in the political discussion nor in the social sciences, what does Europe mean for the individual? How does the individual profit from Europe? What, what more of emancipation comes from Europe to the individual? I actually discussed this in my, in my book. So I'm not going to repeat it here. Um, the German, so, so actually the question is, how does this metaphors of um, national citizenship to a European 
citizenship, to self-understanding and participation of the individual in Europe, how becomes this possible? The German Europe is counterproductive in this direction. But perhaps a vision of a Mediterranean Europe will work. Or picking up Dandor's question, who is a European we? Not only or mainly the United States of Europe, but also or mainly the United Regions of Europe or the United Cities of Europe. A large proportion of the Euro critics and anti-Europeans who are now raising their voices up, prisoners of the outdated national nostalgia. This is how, for example, the French intellectual Alain, Alain um, Finkelkraut argues. Europe thought that it could constitute itself without or even against the nations. It, want, it wanted to punish the nations for the horrors of the 20th century. But there is no post-national democracy. Democracy is monolingual. If it is to function, it needs a shared language and shared life references and a shared project. We do not come into the world as world citizens. Human communities have limits. Europe does not take this into account. This is why the European public cannot work up any enthusiasm for the European Union. This is how Finkelkraut argued in a discussion I had with him. But this criticism of Europe is based on the national delusion that a return to the nation-state ideal is possible in the world at risk. It presupposes a national horizon as a diagnostic framework for Europe's present and future. To these critics, I say broaden your outlook and then you will see that not only just in Europe but in the whole world is a process of transition where the boundaries of European political thinking are no longer even real. And this is relevant for the social sciences as well because the social scientists are to some extent prisoners of what I call methodological nationalism. All the concepts, all our ideas of, of unit of research, all are defined nationally. And when you have, for example, in a discussion with Smul Eisenstadt a few years ago, he said, well, why are the social sciences so much fixed and so much occupied by this national perspective? Because, you know, there has been all kinds of plurality before. It's only 150 years, and now there's a new plurality coming up. How is it possible that a science with so much reflection is only and mainly dominated by the national view? We need a cosmopolitan outlook just to understand what is happening here and now in, in all kinds of areas of, of in Britain, in, in Germany, in the cities, in, in, all, in all the different issues. All nations are faced with a new cultural plurality, not only as a result of migration, but also of internet communication, climate change, euro crisis, digital threats to freedom, etc., etc. People of the most diverse backgrounds with different languages, conceptions of values and religions are living and working alongside each other. Their children are attending the same school and they are trying to become established in the same legal and political system. This is what I call the fact of cosmopolitization. 
in opposition to, he mentioned it already, to the philosophical normal tradition of cosmopolitanism. It's difficult to, to find the new words for those new situations. We can, of course, talk about if this choose, if, if this uh, uh, selection of word is, is a correct one, if, if it really works. But important is to realize that we live in a world where the seemingly excluded other is included. There's cosmopolitization I define as an enforced inclusion of the excluded other. And this is happening in relation to climate change because actors or who are producing this are in a completely different world, but we and others are affected by it. Or it's, uh, with the financial crisis, the same thing. Migration, of course, is a good example. Households, if you look at nannies and who work in households, this is actually one of the main pictures of, well, cosmopolitization because mothers from different countries are working at the same time here and there. And football. Today there's a match, maybe some of you know it, between Bayern München and Real Madrid during the time we are in this discussion. And of course, Bayern München would not be Bayern München if all the people come from Bayern and München. <laughs> you know, they're coming from all over the world. And the same is true with Real Madrid. I sometimes think, you know, and all the world is, is watching. It's a, it's a really huge cosmopolitical event. I, I, I call it as a uh, banner of cosmopolitanism. But we shouldn't underestimate it. Because if Europe would be organized like, like a cha champion, European Championship, you know, we would be in a better, better position. So we maybe could even learn from this kind of cosmopolitization. But on the other hand, this means cosmopolitization does not produce cosmopolitans. It does not produce world citizens. Often the opposite is the case. Because it's enforced cosmopolitan, nobody voted on it. It just happens. We seem to be threatened by by all kinds of strangers in all kinds of ways. People are just doing the opposite. They are redefining the national and the ethnic identity as something in which they find secure. So actually, you couldn't understand even the anti-cosmopolitan movement and sentiments just from a national point of view, from a, if you, if you uh, talk about it in epistemological terms. So actually, you need a different perspective of, of, uh, of of observation, observer perspective, in order to, to analyze this. Well, I actually was trying to discuss uh, <clears throat> the relationship to, to uh, the inter intervention of, of Russia uh, in the Ukraine in this direction, because the interesting point is actually that I think uh, <clears throat> in this situation, uh, two, let's say, a clash of two understandings of nationhood uh, happens in, in, in Europe, maybe in other parts of the country as well. This ethnic territorial definition of, of the nation, where, where the motto, the background motto is where Russians live, there's Russia, there's a Russian state, it's just an ethnic territorial definition. And I think in, in the West we have a different, not so much reflected way of, of let's say, of, of a cosmopolitan nationhood, of a nationhood which understands 
itself not by closure, not by ethnic definition, but by plurality, and at the same time struggles for some kind of, of identity. And uh, in, in, I would say there are two different uh, principles or declarations here in this um, uh, clash of, of uh, nation, understanding of nations. One is the declaration of independence, which is actually still, if you listen to all the discussion, for example, in Turkey, in, in Russia, in, 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 in many other parts of the world, this is the big issue. But on the other hand, we have the declaration of interdependence, which says all uh, to, to cope with the challenges of, 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 of uh, the global age and all the problems we have of interconnectedness, interdependence is the condition for redefining sovereignty and redefining uh, uh, nationhood. Well, time is running. Well, we, had, we talked so much about um, the German Europe, but, uh, and of course there's lots of discussion to, to the Brussels Europe, uh, but what is actually the antidote? What is the counter perspective to, to those uh, visions of the future of Europe? It could be the united regions of Europe, or to be more specific, the vision of a southern Europe. For example, the dream of a Mediterranean wedding bed, as Mi Michel uh, Chevalier uh, uh, named it already in the 19th century, in which north and south and east and west would make love, as he said. The seemingly necessary link between the state, nation, national identity, and a single language would be dissolved. The union, the member state, and the regions concern themselves at different levels with the welfare of the citizens. They lend to citizens, on the one hand, a voice in the globalized world, while giving them, on the other, a sense of regional security and identity. This way, Demokrati is becoming a demoi. Rassi, as you, as you say, I think this is a beautiful way of putting it, a multi-level pluralistic affair uh, to define democracy. Mediterranean culture, as Xavier Livre, is a world of contradictory certainties, indifference, despair, distrust, beauty and hope, thus a mixture that we northern Europeans romanticize as the gardens of the south, wo die Zitronen blühen, where lemon trees bloom, and corruption to some extent. But isn't it true that nevertheless, if the Germans had gone to school with bull players of the South, they would never have plunged the world into the Second World War? Fifth thesis. Why should the European project be saved in the first place? What is the purpose of the European Union in the 21st century? Is there any purpose? Why Europe? Why not the whole world? 
Why not do it alone in Germany, the UK, or France? There are three answers in this respect, summarizing my lecture. First, the success story of the European Union, if you ask what is actually the success of the European Union, it's about how enemies become, become neighbors. Neighbors, not friends. Neighbors who quarrel, neighbors who dislike each other, all kind of neighborship, but they're not enemies. And I think this is, in the, in the background of the history, unbelievable. It's a miracle, actually. And it's, we thought this is already something which we can count on, but now we see even the aggression, the Russian aggression, makes us realize how fragile even this idea could become. As I said, uh, here comes up uh, the clash of, of two understandings of, of nation. The cosmopolitan nation, the European nation, the nation which is uh, in many ways uh, related to the outside world, and the ethnic nation. Um, and actually, the notion of the cosmopolitan nation is related to what the American intellectual Randolph Byrne envisioned as early as 1918, that the American nationalism would become by necessity something very different from the ethnic nationalism of the 20th century Europe by building up what he called the first international nation. The second purpose is that European modernity, which has been uh, disseminated all over the world, is a suicidal project. It is actually climate change, financial crisis, all those things are systematically part of, of our modernization project and are actually threatening the basis of it. So, so actually it's a bit like a car company created a car without any brakes and it started to cause multiple accidents. The company would take these cars back to de resign them and that is exactly what, the, what Europe should do with modernity. Resign, reinventing modernity could be a specific task for Europe in the 21st century, of course, not only for Europe. The third point is there's not only the necessity to introduce a democratic architecture, there's an urgent need for Europeanization from below for the creation of a European civil society, internal and external to the EU, including Russia. There is no native European citizens. citizen. There is only born national citizens. So we could create the most beautiful democratic institutions for Europe, and they will still empty if we don't find a way to change the Europe of side effects into a Europe of the citizen. This Europeanization from below has to be empowered by a European, by a European of the cities. If you, if you once notice um, the political landscape in Europe, maybe not only in Europe, but in other parts of the world as well, you find that the nations are, to put it directly, mostly black political, conservative. But the cities 
are different. They are red-green in, in their political perspective, or they do have this more progressive uh, point of view. And it's interesting to connect the cities as European actors, maybe as glo global actors as well. Let me finish by drawing two implications for social and political theory and research. In order to understand the transformation, the metaphorsis, the verwandlung uh, I'm talking about, uh, which we are experiencing in the world, we have to make a distinction between two types of social and political theories. Those theories who concentrate and focus on the reproduction of social and political order from those theories who focus on the transformation of the political and social order. And it's amazing if you look at the basic uh, social and political theories, all the important ones, they are mainly concentrated on the reproduction of order. Take, for example, uh, uh, Bourdieu's theory on class. Of course, he is demonstrating that there are variations of class in the 20th century, but actually his main theory is class society is reproduced even if there have been political changes through all the century, all the 20th century, and we have evidence now that even the 21st century is still a class society in the old sense. Uh, take Foucault, a wonderful, uh, challenging, amazing theoretical system. But if you look at this point, it's always power. We can do whatever we want. Power is always there already, and whatever happens, it's a reproduction of power. You can even have counterpower, it's reproduction of power. This is his clue. Luhmann is saying that systems are reproduction. They are not even individuals anymore. They are just systems are reproducing systems. And you can go on. All the big theories are about uh, reproduction of order. We don't have many theories of transformation of order. Some examples is, for, is for example, <coughs> is especially in Britain, Sigmund Baumann, uh, Anthony Giddens, um, and others as well, including myself. In order to understand what is in, in, in the kind of dynamics we are in, we have to redefine the basic concepts of social sciences in a frame of reference of transformation. And uh, a second consequence, we need a cosmopolitan turn in the social sciences. We need to distinguish, as I said before, between cosmopolitanism as a philosophical norm and cosmopolitization as a fact, as a research program in the social and political thought that goes beyond methodological nationalism. The national outlook is not, not only misunderstands the reality of Europeanization, etc., but it obscures how breathtaking, exciting social sciences could become again. The classics were fascinated by the newly discovered continent called society. A reflection of this fascination could reappear if the curiosity of exploring the unexplored landscape created by the ongoing transformation of the social and political order 
was to revive the sociological imagination, making sociology and social sciences once again interesting to sociologists themselves, to other disciplines, and to the public and the politics. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Ori, uh, for a very substantial and wide-ranging lecture, I think particularly challenging to Britain, quite apart from the prospect of being flooded, uh, and to Manchester United, of course. Calypso. Thank you, thank you for sharing these extremely inspiring ideas with us today. Europe needs them, but more to the point, we need them. Uh, ever since Ralph left us, brilliant UK-friendly, pro-EU German intellectuals, intimately familiar with both sides of the channels, have become an endangered species. And you are to be nurtured on these eyes, and I know you've been at LSE, but we are here today to express this, this feeling. And not only by the likes of Clegg, who, um, for who Continentals with a Human Face is very precious, but by all of us EU expats living in the fear of 2017, and who are here in this room. Uh, thank God for friends like David and Tim here. Uh, so you will not be surprised that I was particularly intrigued in listening to you by your desire to win the support of the Eurosceptical European citizen. Who are these Eurosceptics that you would like to appeal to? Um, they could be us, of course, because after all, as academics and scholars, we should all be skeptical. That's our job. But perhaps, perhaps you're thinking about the 350 million or so Europeans who are going to the polls in three weeks and who might return a partially self-hating European Parliament, or at least those among the voters and the MEPs who are rational Eurosceptics, amenable to the giving of reasons, the kind of things we do in Oxford and you do in Munich and at LSE. Uh, so I would like to use my Ulrich Beck moment right now, if I may, to take you up on how your cosmopolitan vision can be soluble in this Eurosceptic Euro ethos of our age. That's the challenge you've set yourself. Now, if we start with thesis number one, which encapsulates your important credo that you were reminding us at the end that the social science should resolutely turn their gaze from patterns of reproduction to dynamics of transformation, isn't telling the story of European transformation over the last half centuries as led by courts and judge and judges grind to the mill of Eurosceptics? Isn't it, in fact, the case that the European Union has always been, and not only since Marcosi, the affair of its democratic government, and that, as many legal theorists argue, the Luxembourg judges have simply helped write the blueprint from time to time? Law is politics and through politics, right? Um, and then in the story of transformation, can we really say that no one authorized this Europe of side effects, as you call it, as you so rightly call it? European messianic elites 
have always believed that they were authorized by their sacred peace mission. That's what they believe. And problematically, maybe for you, they often call themselves cosmopolitan, miscall themselves cosmopolitan, I have, as I witnessed extensively when I was neither wise nor a man, as uh, Tim was alluding to earlier. So, and these messianic elites call for cosmopolitanism as a fig leaf to do their own thing, their mission. So if there is a cunning of reason, as you were saying, does it not operate precisely through the anti-politics of the European Union's founders and elites, which have led us, the cunning of reason, to the inescapability of what we could call the third transformation of democracy, a la Robert Dow? Uh, and if that's the case, then shouldn't Eurosceptics not rejoice for this cunning of reason? Which then led, leads me to your very important changing landscape of power. Just two quick points. Um, you say Britain is the greater victim of the division between the Euro have and have nots. You were saying this a moment ago. But what do you think of the fact that perhaps a majority of people in this country do not see it that way? Even if, even if they're pro-EU, they think they have the best of all worlds. The EU, and not just the single market, minus the euro. That's brilliant. That, is, that this attractiveness is the real Achilles heel of proponents of the no is what Clegg means when he, tries out, when he cries out that leaving the EU would amount to monumental economic vandalism. That's what he means. So perhaps the real question, the constructive Eurosceptics that you want to appeal to, and not just in Britain, by the way, you know, might want to ask you, is can your cosmopolitan vision accommodate support very pragmatically, this is politics, for, this, for a minimal version of reform and repatriate agenda uh, when you go back and speak in Berlin? Or is that giving too much to Cameron and the Tories? Is it really giving too much to acknowledge that European federalism, and we can call it that way, ought to be about cycles of federalism. That's what federalism always has been about. Aren't the Eurosceptics the real federalists? Oh my god. And my answer to all this is yes, but we can have a conversation. You can accommodate this Eurosceptic vision. Which brings us to the second point on the changing of power, the German question. And indeed, today and in this wonderful little book, which uh, I really recommend to all of you, um, your German Europe, you have denounced courageously Germany's neo-hegemony in our new accidental empire. And you have been admired all over Europe for doing so. Uh, indeed, we do admire, in general, Germans uh, often Ulyssean you know, self-restraint, tie our hands, please or tie me to the mast, but um, can we not grant Merchiavelli, as you beautifully put it, a nod to her own Eurosceptics, uh, that responsibility to others across Europe cannot be detached to responsiveness to the self and therefore a, a respectful yes, but a droit de regard into Greek finance. Sorry, Othon and other Greeks in the room. Uh, and linked to this point, um, you, you speak eloquently of, of the obfuscation of European interest. But 
Couldn't we argue that if the solutions to the crisis are to be democratically sustainable on the creditor front and debitor front, should there be such a thing as a European interest that is distinct from enlightened national interest, after all? When Schauber, and you, it's an example you give in your book, advocates raising German workers' uh, um, wages, is this not simply good for them? You know, they can spend uh, the extra time off and the extra money uh, on southern beaches, and the southerners will spend more buying uh, German goodies in return. So it's all about national interest, isn't it? Or is it? But if it is, or if you grant me this, then Eurosceptics might not be that unhappy with your cosmopolitanism. And to be sure, to be sure, we, we do need to fend together in the world risk society that you have so cogently analyzed you know, for, for, for so long. But if Europe as a community of destiny has its role to play in this global risk game, how can cosmopolitan institutions counter the continued tendencies of, of, of their role to socialize risk and privatize benefit? Can cosmopolitan institutions do all that work? And should facing risk together as Europeans preclude us from going bankrupt alone? Should it? I don't know. Which brings me to our shared bête noire, and I completely agree with you, methodological nationalism. As you reminded everyone earlier, the, the tendency we have in the social science to analyze all political forms in the modern world through the prism of the nation state. Yes, but the question becomes, can cosmopolitanism really avoid the risk of cloning the state at the European level? And I know you say yes, but despite your best intention, can it do that? Can it avoid state writ large at the European level without accepting that methodological nationalism still belongs to nation-state, that they have a role to play in our world. Isn't it the case that in the age of crowdfunding and distributed network intelligence, large-scale phenomena often do not call for large-scale governance? And that's your Europe as emancipation, obviously. But, but at the same time, it, it may be the case that your version of, of cosmopolitan may escape the Eurosceptic legitimate fear of loss of local control if they don't control national politics. In other words, you do call a Europe from, for a Europe from below. I think many of us in this room will, will agree with you and, and, and call for that Europe for below, from below. But why should it express yourself only through itself only through cities? And I love your point that cities are more progressive than countries or regional politics, but not above all through national politics at the end of the day. Uh, should we not instead recognize in a cosmopolitan way the primacy of national politics in European democracy and simply wish for a union of peoples both as free as possible from each other's interference or interference from Brussels and Berlin while at the same time radically open to each other, as you said, the forced inclusion of the excluded others. So the idea of democracy is not just a kind of like a mild, benign, sovereignist kind of thing, because it's all about enforcing the, trying to say that Europe should empower national democracies and make them healthy, fight against de-democratization as we see it so often, 
but at the same time that these are not good old national democracies. They should be radically open to each other. And if we say that, then how much do we really need the cosmopolitan superstructure? Or what kind of cosmopolitan superstructure do we really need? And if, we, if that brings us to the identity front and your call for the metamorphosis of the national citizen into a European citizen, Yes, yeah, but yes and no, as we commemorate World War I. Uh, you know, turning French peasant into Frenchman, well, that didn't only bring good stuff, but then what should we necessarily want to turn them into Euroman? You know, as a French woman, I have my doubts. But, um, and in fact, as a Franco-Greek citizen married to a Brit, I'm also for your own... Uh, version of the, this Mediterranean wedding bed. But, but why a single wedding bed rather than wedding beds all around Europe? Um, you know, you know, we should take romantic pluralism seriously. I don't want to go too far down this <laughs> metaphor here. I'm in a bit in trouble. But my basic point is why should we need one story for Europe, even a cosmopolitan story? isn't rather the combination of the diversity of European stories into a grand and extravagant polyphony, even cacophony, that is the ultimate European story. Or in Umberto Eco's term, isn't translation the only common language of Europe? Your call, indeed, I do believe, your call for Germans and Greeks to share bull rather than bullets, uh, isn't that call more consistent, indeed, sharing bull rather than bullet, with we, the peoples of Europe, rather than a European we, more consistent with an ethos of mutual recognition and engagement than a European demos. And I, and I, I know that you share this belief. And do, can we not therefore say that if we can articulate this vision, these, these Eurosceptics of the constructive kind you want to appeal to uh, indeed might, might have a chance in the story? So to conclude, two thoughts on connecting the internal and the external ambition for a cosmopolitan Europe that you have shared with us. First thought, you call for reinventing modernity in Europe. And to be sure, if this is about reflexive modernization, as you've, as you've um, discussed brilliantly in your work, I am all for it. But even so, should we not be wary of epistemological and ontological risk uh, in reinventing a kind of new standards of civilization under the guise of European modernity, which we will claim to be perhaps a, bit, a kind of experimental model for the rest of the world? Isn't it time to let go of any kind of Eurocentric civilizational conceits, e-universalism, and embrace Europe as really an evanescent cosmopolitan idea, an evanescent mediator, happy with its humble contribution to global reinvention. And secondly, second closing thought, and lastly, Tim, um, okay, I agree with you that we should all be European cosmopolitan. I grant you that. And that we should be able to tell Ukrainians who want our boots on the ground and Russians who who actually don't, uh, that we are not Kantian as Europe because we are weak. We are weak because we are Kantian. Yes, we can't. Uh, <laughs> but, but would you not then agree with me 
that to be faithful to Kant's cosmopolitan conditional hospitality, we need our good old nation states to provide love and care to the Ukrainian refugees when, if they come, hopefully they won't, and to grab Russian assets when they try to leave ours. In other words, that what we need in Europe is state cosmopolitanism or rooted cosmopolitanism, the kind that starts with selling cosmopolitization at home and which maybe mature Eurosceptics might come to accept and therefore embrace your vision. <laughs> Thank you very much, Calypso, for a splendid challenge. David. Well, uh, uh, it is really a great privilege to have been asked to come here to respond uh, to this fifth Darendorf lecture. Uh, I uh, worked with Ralph uh, in the Commission in Brussels and in the House of Lords, uh, and uh, I admired his intellect enormously, and above all his skill of bringing out into the open often complex and contradictory tendencies in society and politics. It's a privilege, too, to follow Professor Beck, whose fascinating and thought-provoking lecture we've just heard, uh, and I'm not in agreement with every word he said. Tim, you did tell me I was meant to be a bit controversial. Uh, but um, uh, I would very much strongly agree with his view that recent Russian actions in Crimea and Ukraine do pose a fundamental challenge to European solidarity and to our attachment to a rules-based and human rights-based international order, a challenge to which our response will be central to the future development of the European Union. But if I could, having agreed with that, take issue with another point, uh, I would really question a bit um, the way in which the outcry that has arisen over the US National Security Agency's activities and the whole issue of data protection whether it's not being uh, addressed in a rather one-sided way. In my analysis, the communication revolution of recent years, the internet, mobile phones, digital applications, all that, has brought with it a massive positive boost to individual freedoms and opportunities. An enlargement of them far beyond our imagining when they were first being developed. But it has had its dark side too. Think only of transnational child pornography or the scope for terrorists and religious fundamentalists to ply their trades. In dealing with these challenges, state institutions need to find a new balance uh, between protecting their citizens and protecting their citizens' privacy. And that's not proving easy or straightforward. It would be surprising if it was. But it is a balance, I would argue, that needs to be struck both at the national, the European, and the international level. And then a, a brief disclaimer. 
the uh, remarks I'm going to make in response to uh, today's lecture will be those of a practitioner and not an academic. And they will reflect a British mindset, albeit the mindset of a Britain, much of whose professional life has been devoted to Britain's uh, participation in the European cause, over which the possibility of an in-out referendum in 2017 now casts a deep and baleful shadow. Now, I would agree there is no doubt whatsoever that the European project needs, urgently needs, resuscitation. European elections at the end of May are likely to lead to a sharp increase in votes for anti-EU or anti-Euro parties and in the number of seats they hold in the European Parliament. Uh, that, in parenthesis, may not much change the European Parliament's ability to operate and take decisions if, as I believe will be the case, the three main groups, the Socialists, the Christians and the Liberals, work more closely together in future than they've done in the past, and also given the remarkably vociferous and nationalistic nature of the anti-Euro, anti-EU uh, parties. Uh, moreover, these protest movements, which is what they are, are more widespread than ever before. In UK, you have UKIP. In France, the Front National. In Holland, you have Wilders' PVV. You have True Finns, True Swedes. In Italy, you have Five Star. Greece, you have Golden Dawn. In Hungary, you have Jobbik. Uh, so we must not think that these can simply be wished away. But how best are we to respond? I doubt very much myself the viability of a great grassroots movement from below. I would be state with reasonable certainty that it wouldn't work in this country. Uh, it could actually widen the gap between Britain and some others uh, the gap between Britain on one side and, say, the Scandinavian countries and some East Europeans on the one hand, and more integrationist, federalist member states on the other. And if I could be allowed a short digression on semantics, after all, in Oxford, well, certainly when I was here, the School of Philosophy spent a lot of its time talking about semantics. The capacity of the British to misunderstand certain words is highly developed. Take federalism. Uh, federalism, which we uh, honestly believe to be a centralizing proposition, uh, based on, of course, the American example, and ignore totally the German example, which is exactly the opposite. Take the word intellectual. Uh, in France, to be called a public intellectual is a compliment. In this country, it is an insult. Uh, and take, and here I forgive, hope I may be forgiven, if I could pick up the word cosmopolitan. A very dangerous word in this country, I have to say. One of our junior ministers recently managed to insult the Prime Minister, inadvertently of course, 
by saying that those who were in favour of migration were mainly in favour in order to have foreign nannies, having forgotten that the Prime Minister had one. (laughs) But uh, he did not use the word cosmopolitan elite as a compliment. And so I think there is a risk in that word in this country, not in the concept, but in the word. Now, such an approach, uh, if we are, how should we respond then? I would argue myself that it is better to fight emotional appeals to the past with rational appeals to the future. Such an approach would need to combine positive aspects, clearly, a broad policy reform agenda, and it would combine that with negative aspects the absence and the unconvincing nature of the alternatives available to all Europeans. If I was asked what that positive reform agenda would consist of, I would put forward roughly the following, and it would be a positive policy reform agenda. It would involve, of course, completing the single market in services in particular. It would involve creating a level playing field for digital. It would involve an energy single market and much greater effective energy security and the Ukraine uh, issue has put the spotlight back on that very happily in my view. It would involve a common foreign and security policy which could really deal with the problems being posed by President Putin's uh, newly developed theses, which, alas, bear all too close a resemblance to others we have heard earlier in the last century. Uh, we, I would include in my list of policy areas much greater defence cooperation in order to cope with the problems of austerity budgets. We need freer and fairer trade on a worldwide basis, which would involve reviving the World Trade Organization, which made a little bit of progress in Bali uh, to try and complete the Doha round and also to complete the set of free trade agreements which are being negotiated by Europe with Canada, Japan, the United States and perhaps Brazil. I would look to see a renewed leadership by Europe on climate change, the completion of Balkan enlargement and an item that's often overlooked, and I think here meets a point that Calypso is making, uh, a, more, uh, a more structured role for national parliaments in the shaping of European legislation. The European Union Select Committee, which Tim made uh, reference, has just written a report on that and how you could enhance the role of national parliaments without treaty change. Uh, There are a lot of things you could do, and I believe that that is a way of reinforcing, not the only way, but part of the way of reinforcing what is called the dealing with the democratic deficit, uh, but in a way that is less sweeping than some of the others. Uh, I would not, therefore, in my list, include uh, sweeping treaty change, although there may need to be one or two tweaks to the present treaties for the Eurozone members, I suspect that will be the case. I don't think there is really an appetite for sweeping treaty change across Europe. 
and the referendums likely to be triggered by any treaty that contained that could very well fail. And it would be pretty disastrous, frankly, if Europe spent the next few years negotiating such changes and then the years following that in failing to ratify them. Uh, there have actually been far too many institution-based uh, reforms, treaties, in the last 20 years. If you look at the list, it's a bit terrifying, really. The Single European Act, Maastricht, Amsterdam, Nice, the Constitutional Treaty, Lisbon. I reckon we could have done with about at least two or three of those. Uh, but uh, they, the key thing is that that institutional approach, as opposed to the policy-based approach to reform, which I would suggest is the right one, that institution-based approach hasn't mustered support for the European Union. If anything, the contrary, as we're seeing with the voting uh, next month. And in the end, I would suggest that the success of the European project depends on building across many historical fault lines and many cultural and political differences. It cannot be done by trying to eliminate those. It, we have to construct across those fault lines which means that you need solid foundations on both sides of the fault lines and not too ambitious a structure on top. Uh, I don't myself think that there is any future or any sense in what is called a two-speed Europe, but we will, I'm convinced, need a good deal of variable geometry. Europe has already been pretty good at defining variable geometry, both in the membership and non-membership of the euro, in the Schengen area, in the um, justice and home affairs area, and now uh, emerging on banking union. And I don't think that there is any reason to believe that the concept of variable geometry couldn't be developed further. So, last word, just remember, I would suggest that the lamented uh, constitutional treaty, uh, which was defeated, posed as the motto of Europe, unity in diversity. And perhaps we should always look at Europe as one of these cases where the best is frequently the enemy of the good.